Please open your Bibles to the second psalm. Last week we began our month-long study in the book of Psalms with Psalm 1. This Psalm 1 was sort of an entrance gate to the book of Psalms, an introduction, prologue. And Psalm 2 really is the second half of that introduction. In the first Psalm we saw the great theme of the way of wisdom, the way of folly, the way of life, the way of death. And in this psalm, we're going to see the other great theme of the psalms, God's coming judgment in his Son and Messiah. The coming kingdom of God with universal rule of the Son of David. It's it's a thrilling psalm, an epic psalm. It's so closely connected to the first psalm that actually in some of our oldest manuscripts, it's joined The Hebrew text would have had no first, second, third, and without any um, introduction or postscript, the text would just flow from one to the other. So let's read in its entirety Psalm 2, the second psalm. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Lord God, we, we want to see Jesus. And in this messianic psalm that speaks of him and his ministry and his coming judgment, open our eyes, Lord, to behold wondrous things in your word. Enlarge our hearts. Help us to grow in love and wonder and awe at your king, your Messiah, at your son, and help us to take hope in what this prophetic psalm says of his and our future. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 2 is often called an enthronement psalm. An enthronement psalm. In fact, the title of this morning's sermon in your bulletin is the enthronement of the Lord's anointed king and son. It's, it's a Davidic psalm. It's quoted frequently in the New Testament. It's the second most quoted psalm, second only to Psalm 110, that great, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, Psalm 110. Psalm 2 is second behind it in being quoted as a messianic psalm referring to Jesus. In fact, I've often told 
our high school students, if you only know two Messianic Psalms, be familiar with Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. They're the two most quoted Psalms in the entire New Testament. And as I said earlier, it introduces the Psalm's second great theme, the Messiah and his coming kingdom. And ultimately, this Psalm is eschatological, as we're going to see. The conflict depicted the smashing of the nations with a rod of iron is actually language the book of Revelation picks up three times to describe Jesus smashing his foes at the battle of Armageddon. So ultimately, this is a psalm that was written by David as an enthronement psalm for him or for his sons, and yet ultimately will find its fulfillment in the eschaton, the day of the Lord. More importantly, it draws together three threads in scripture that we assume this side of Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection, we are familiar with Jesus as our prophet, as our priest, as our king, as the Lord's Messiah and Christ. But these threads introduced at various points in the Old Testament were not as clear to the Jews of Jesus' day. In fact, in John chapter 1, when the Jews sent a delegation to John the Baptist, they asked him, are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? But the prophet predicted in Deuteronomy is the Messiah. They didn't understand that. And this psalm brings together three of those threads into one person. Because there's a tight structure to Psalm 2. There are four stanzas, four paragraphs, four vivid scenes it depicts. And in each stanza, there are the Lord and a second party. So look, if you will, at um, verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take their counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. So there's our two people, the Lord and the anointed. Then in the second stanza, verse 4, he who sits in heaven laughs, the Lord holds him in derision. There's our first half. In verse 6, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the first stanza, we've got the Lord and Messiah. Second stanza, Lord and my king. Third stanza, Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. And then down in verse 11 and 12, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. So in each stanza, there's the Lord and this other party. First introduced as the Messiah, or anointed. Second, as king. And then twice more, as son. And so Psalm 2 draws these threads together. It's kind of like where rivers join, where tributaries come together and form a bigger, deeper, more powerful river. This, these messianic threads are joined together in Psalm 2. And now we learn in Psalm 2 that this is one individual to look for. And so it's an exciting messianic psalm. The other point of its structure that's important to notice is its use of parallel lines. Last week we talked about how Hebrew poetry uses parallel lines. In Psalm 1, one of the ways parallel lines works is developing a thought. So he, the, the, the blessed man does not walk in the way of sinners, nor stand in the seat of scoffers, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, I'm sorry. And so it develops that thought. Or, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. It's developing that thought. Here, the parallel lines say the same thing. It's synonymous, parallelism. So in verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot a vain thing? 
We're talking about the same thing. There's not two events, the nation's raging, the people's plotting. It's two ways of describing the same thing. And that is used um, throughout the entire psalm. Parallel lines saying the same thing. So verse 4, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds him in derision, is describing the same thing and throughout. So it's highly structured, each paragraph having the Lord and the second party. And so let's dive in looking at the first scene. And in your notes, we're going to look at the conspiracy of the nations. The conspiracy of the nations. The psalm opens up with a question as if the psalmist is confused or vexed, not understanding. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So we see a conspiracy that A, is global, conscious, and theological. Global, conscious, and theological. It's global in its extent. All the nations of the earth, all the rulers of the earth. It's conscious because they're planning, they're plotting. In fact, that word for plan is the same word from Psalm 1, cheged, which means to mutter or growl. In, in Psalm 1, it's the righteous man delights to meditate on God's law. Here, the wicked are doing their own meditating, and it's a form of plotting. So there's clearly some form of intended contrast, even between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. The righteous man meditates on God's law. The wicked are meditating on some plot to cast off what they view the restrictions of the Lord from them. It's theological. It's against God. And so when we look at the nations around us and the evil being done, and, and we have just come out of the bloodiest, most horrific century in human history. You just think of the events of the 20th century. It is the bloodiest century in human history with nations and leaders doing horrific acts of evil. And understand first and foremost, it is against God. Before it's against us, before it's against other people groups, it is against God and God takes it intensely personally. That's not to say that all the rulers of the earth consciously are rebelling against God. But as Romans 1 tells us, natural man suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. For what may be known about God is evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or were thankful, but professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. And so whether it's consciously or unconsciously, this rebellion is against the Lord first and foremost. As much as we see the horizontal damage, as much as we see the suffering and the, the tragedy of lost life when the nations rage, it is first and foremost against God. Secondly, there's the tremendous irony of the fact that they seek freedom in slavery. They seek freedom in slavery. You see, our world is convinced that what holds us in check are moral laws. God's given us all a conscience. He's created human government to restrain evil. And yet the history of man is one attempt after another to 
cast these supposed bonds off of us. Even right now in our country, there's an attempt to cast off the all-too-restrictive definition of what marriage is. And wouldn't we be freer? Wouldn't people be freer and more blessed if we could just cast off these bonds that hold us in check? And yet, in John 8, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so we learn in the upside-down kingdom of God, where to be lowly is to be exalted, where to be first is to be last, we learn that to be a slave of Christ is to be truly free. And to be free from God is to be in utter slavery. So the nations, the peoples, want freedom, and they look for it in slavery. And again, the history of our culture is not of people getting better and better, but more and more depraved, more and more unable to control their passions and desires. As they break off the cords of God's moral law, God's conscience, as they more and more assert their own autonomy, they don't become free and blessed. They become slaves to corruption and miserable. The third thing we see in this first stanza is that it is always taking place. It is always taking place. We're going to see that this ultimately gets fulfilled in the book of Revelation. But turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. This raging of the nations is always taking place. This is the way of things until the end of days. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have just been beaten and released. And we'll pick it up in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit... And then they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed? For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So we're going to clearly see that the complete and total fulfillment, or maybe better yet, the filling up of Psalm 2 is, is a time off from now. In a cataclysmic showdown, clearly depicted in, in Revelation 19, which is where we're going to end up. The early church applies the same theme to the crucifixion of Jesus. They see it as a type, as consistent with what's going on. It's the spirit of the age. So yes, Psalm 2 is ultimately picturing the final conflagration of the nations raging against God, and yet around us all the time, we see it happening. We see it happening all the time around us. And praise God for periods of relief from this, when rulers do what is righteous and good. But the way of the world is is the way of Psalm 2. After all, who is the... Who is the ruler of this world? Who offered Jesus the kingdoms of this world? The devil himself. 
And Jesus didn't respond saying, well, you don't own the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus responded by saying, quoting Deuteronomy, man shall worship only God. So this is always taking place. And I want to make one quick note about Messiah, this term. Uh, my Bible, my translation back in Psalm 2 says Messiah. And we're to learn Greek Hebrew word today. You already know it, but you're going to know that you know it in just a moment. Messiah is Hebrew. It's simply a transliteration across from Hebrew of Messiah. Christos or Christ is the Greek for the same word. And they all mean anointed or anointed one. So anointed Messiah and Christ are English Hebrew and Greek for the same thing. They're absolutely interchangeable. So when in your Bible you see anointed, Messiah, or Christ, it's all the same thing. It's just different languages for the same thing. So the Lord's anointed. And in the Old Testament, we learn about God anointing certain men for certain tasks. The prophets, the Levitic priests, the Davidic king. We'll see, David received the Holy Spirit, was anointed by um, Samuel to become king. And so this anointing is the notion of God gifting with authority and purpose an individual. And Psalm 2 brings it together that where there have been previously Lord's anointed. I mean, even Saul, King Saul is referred to as the Lord's anointed, or you could translate it the Lord's Christ. Just be Greek. Psalm 2 makes it clear that while there have been anointed ones of the Lord, we're looking for a particular, special, powerful, unusual Lord's anointed. And then it starts taking on in the New Testament the definite article, are you the Christ? Not a Christ. There have been Christ. Are you the Christ? And Psalm 2 is what gives this legs and strength and force. The person described in Psalm 2 is unlike any person we've seen before. So, so stanza one, we see the conspiracy of the nations. Stanza two, the next scene is the Lord's response. So the camera shifts from earth to heaven. And we read, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. We see the contempt of the Lord. So is the Lord concerned? Is the Lord worried? I mean, after all, all the nations of the earth and all their might and all their weapons and all their missiles and everything they've got, they're aiming at God. Do you think God's worried? God laughs. And, and this isn't the good type of laughter. You don't, you don't want to be laughed at like this. This is mockery. This is derision. This is contempt. It is pathetic. The attempt of the nations to fight God is purely ineffectual and impotent. They can do nothing. God laughs. God's not worried, and neither should we. God's angry. God cares about it. And we should be angered and grieved by the evil in the world, but we shouldn't be shaken. God isn't worried. Oh no, am I going to win? He looks at the nations, and in Isaiah, they're like a drop of dust. Drop of dust. They're a speck of dust or a drop of water, mixing my metaphors, in the scales, in the Lord's view. He laughs. It's, it's pathetic. It's contemptuous. We also see his anger. Because remember, this is first and foremost theological. This is first and foremost rebellion against God. And God takes that very personally. 
If you're ever tempted to wonder, where is God with all this evil in the world? Does he care? Yes, he does. Oh, yes, he does. He is angry. He is furious at the evil being done on the earth, at the rebellion against his sovereign rule. So he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king in Mount Zion. And then we see his king. Now, I love this contrast. In the first stanza, we see all the nations of the earth gather together, having a little secret council meeting. And God is so unmoved by this, he's so unconcerned by this, it's as if he's saying, I don't even need to deal with this personally, my king will take care of it for me. Oh, you're all gathered against me, huh? Well, guess what? I established my king in Mount Zion. That should take care of it. And because of who that king is, the Lord Jesus, that'll take care of it. In Revelation, the the battle, when Jesus shows up on a white horse, is not much of a battle. Do you know how he shuts down the nations? He opens his mouth and speaks. That's it. Because it's the authority of the same voice that spoke this world into creation. There isn't a battle. This would be a boring movie in a sense that there wouldn't be a back and forth battle. It would just be he shows up and he wins. That'd be it. I mean, it'd be a wondrous, glorious appearing, but it wouldn't be much of a battle. God is so unperturbed. He is so unshaken. He is so unworried about the rebellion of the nations that he says, my my king will take care of this for me. so So in response to the global conspiracy to fight God, he just points to his king. He just points to his king. God's remedy against evil in this world does not ultimately lie in anything other than his son. And that's the thing we've got to grasp. There are all sorts of good things we can do on this earth, but the only ultimate remedy to the evil in this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. A changing hearts one at a time, because there's going to come a day when Jesus Christ is going to return and he's going to set things straight. And it will not be well for God's enemies. But the Lord's response to the rebellion of the nations is his son. Is his son. So we've seen the contempt of the Lord, the conspiracy of the nations. Third, the coronation of the king. The coronation of the king. And now the the camera, if you will, this third scene goes to the actual enthronement. Quite possibly the enthronement ceremony. We're no longer on the Lord, but we're on this king, this anointed And we read, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now this verse, verse 7, is used three times directly applied to Jesus. In Acts 13, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 5. And as best as we can understand what's going on, um, this is the, the procedure of when the king is anointed king, when the king is publicly made king, presented as king, they would read the Davidic promises. Um, we have an account of this in 2 Kings eleven twelve. Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. They proclaimed him king and anointed him. 
They clapped their hands and said, long live the king. So they brought out the testimony. And what we're likely have here is that when they make the Davidic king king, when they coronate him, and there's a long line of David's descendants, well, they would recount God's promises to David. God promised David a dynasty. He promised him a heritage, an offspring. And so it makes sense that the first thing this newly anointed king does is claim and announce and celebrate the Davidic promises. So let's take a look at that by looking at the decree of the Lord. Let's turn to 2 Samuel 7 to look at those Davidic promises. Now in 2 Samuel 7, the scenario is this. David has called a prophet and offered to build a temple for the Lord. He feels ashamed that he dwells in a luxurious home and yet the Lord's ark is in a tent a tabernacle and he offers to build God a house and the Lord responds by saying basically I'm glad you thought of this David but if I needed the house I'd tell you besides your hands are too bloody but it pleased the Lord and he made an everlasting covenant with David now let's read this carefully picking it up in verse 12 2 Samuel 7, 12. The Lord promises to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So let's just stay here for a moment and look at this, this covenant that God makes. Because... You can't miss the fact that Psalm 2-7 is quoting this, is referencing this. So the newly anointed king, what's the first thing he does? They bring him the testimony and he reads the Davidic covenant. He reads God's promises to give the people hope, to claim them, to celebrate them. And we're just going to see three things in the Davidic covenant. First, it's death proof. It is death proof. We see that when David lies down with his fathers, then the Lord will raise up, and literally it's your seed after you. So it's not just one person, but a line. David's descendants after him. Death will not end this. It will go on. You may have a good king, you may have a bad king, but death will not end this covenant. This isn't just a covenant that goes as far as David. Secondly, it is sin-proof. And this is important because what happened to Saul God promised Saul that he'd make a dynasty or a house for him. And Saul sends it away. First by offering a sacrifice he had no business to offer. He lost the um, dynasty at that point. And then when he spared Agag and kept the best of the animals, when he was supposed to destroy the Amalekites, he makes a statue for himself, he loses the kingdom. And in 1 Samuel 15, the Lord tells him he has been rejected. He removes his Holy Spirit and he sends Samuel to anoint David. And the Holy Spirit comes upon David. So David has seen the Lord abandon someone. He's seen it firsthand. He's seen a king sin away his kingship. 
And God says to him, I will never let that happen with your sons. Now we know this isn't directly messianic because Jesus doesn't sin. And so verse 14 would be kind of blasphemous if we say this is only talking about Jesus. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul and put away from before you. Now, this, is, this has in view probably most directly Solomon, who is the one who actually builds the temple. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and then his son, and his son, and his son. And what the Lord promises, this dynasty won't stop at your death, David, and this dynasty will not stop because of the wickedness of your sons or grandsons. And if you read through the book of Kings, some of David's grandsons and great-grandsons were quite wicked. And so individual kings could invite judgment upon themselves. Individual kings could send themselves into judgment. But the dynasty goes on. God's covenant promises go on. And fourthly, we see that it is an eternal covenant. An eternal covenant. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is an eternal covenant. It can't be broken by sin. It can't be broken by death. No wonder the newly anointed king quotes and celebrates this. And it involves this special sonship. That's the next thing we're to look at. We're going to zoom in on this word son used in Psalm 2. You can go back to Psalm 2 now. What does it mean then for this king that he becomes God's son? Well, most immediately talking about Solomon, it means that when Solomon assumes the throne, he's going to enter into a special relationship with God. And here we need to understand that the Jewish concept of sonship used in Scripture and used by Jesus is, is not the way we generally think of it. We, we, with our genetic testing and CSI, we, we think of sonship and we think of paternity. In the Jewish mind, this term is usually used functionally. So Jesus can say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That doesn't mean that you get saved by making peace. It just means that to the extent that you make peace, you're kind of like the ultimate peacemaker. It's kind of like a chip off the old block, like father, like son. Jesus can say to the Pharisees, you're of your father, the devil, in John 8. And he's not disparaging their mothers. What What he's saying is, rather, he was a liar from the beginning. You're lying about me. He was a murderer from the beginning. You're trying to kill me. I know whose kids you are because you're acting like your dad. And, and so this notion of functional sonship. Turn to uh, John chapter 5. Jesus, this is primarily how Jesus unpacks his own sonship to the Father. John 5 begins with the account of the, the, the paralyzed man by the pool who's healed. He picks up his mat. He starts walking off and it's a Sabbath day and the Pharisees get upset and they say to him, who, who gave you permission to get up and, and walk around? You're, you're breaking the Sabbath. And he points to Jesus. And so they go to Jesus and we'll pick it up in um, verse 17. Jesus said to them, Here's his answer. They said, why, why are you working on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, verse 17, my father's working to now, so I'm working. I mean, do, you, do you see the audacity of that claim? I have the same rights and privileges of my dad. My dad works on the Sabbath, so uh, I do. And they understand him. They, they don't miss what he's saying. 
Because this is why, according to verse 18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself an equal to God. Let's keep reading. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Now notice this. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. In what way is Jesus a son? Because he's an awful lot like his dad. In fact, he's fully God. See, you and I can be godly. We can act in ways that are like God. We can be kind. We can be loving. But who here created the universe recently? Who here is currently holding all things together by the power of their word? See, unpack that. Don't miss the absolute audacity, the absolute just mind-blowing statement and claim Jesus is making in verse 19. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Whatever God the Father does, Jesus does. And the only way that works is if Jesus is God. But notice, Jesus' sonship is functional. He's not talking about genetic descent. And that's the way this is used here. I wish we could spend more time in John 5. It's it's mind-blowingly deep. But back to Psalm 2. The psalmist says, I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. And so the concept is this. On the day of enthronement, the Davidic king enters into a stance where he represents corporately the nation of Israel, whom God calls his son. Israel is my firstborn. Out of Egypt I called my son. And so the Davidic king stands in the place of Israel. He represents Israel corporately, and he represents God on earth. He speaks to the Israelites for God. And so he's got a very special relationship, which according to the Davidic covenant is defined as a father-son relationship. Solomon, on the day of his entering into his rule, enters into this relationship where God says, I will be to him a father, he will be to me a son. And it's anticipating the Messiah who comes, who doesn't just correspond to God in a few ways, but in every way. The Messiah who himself is God. This is just marvelous. So functional, functional sonship Point C, we got to look at this word today. What, what is that all about? Because remember, this verse is ascribed to Jesus three times. Today, I have begotten you. Well, it's pretty easy to understand for David's sons. It's the day of the coronation. It's the day they become king. And this gets a little trickier with Jesus because we've got to ask, well, when did Jesus become king? And in one sense, there's a sense in which Jesus is born king of the Jews, Right? But maybe a better way to think about it is, is what is the event that publicly coronates Jesus? What is the event that for the entire watching universe proves his claim? Vin, vin, absolutely, the resurrection. And that's the blank. The resurrection is the today. Which makes an awful lot of sense then of how, if you want to turn to Acts 13, Peter uses this verse. The resurrection of Jesus is the event by which he publicly is proven and shown to be who he's always claimed to be, David's son, the Messiah, the king, the prophet, God of very God. It's all proven at the resurrection. And that's when Jesus ascends to the right hand on high. 
And that's when, according to Philippians, the Lord has therefore bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the resurrection. And so, in Acts 13, pick it up in 32. Peter preaching, and we bring you good news, or we gospelize you, because gospel means good news. That God, what he has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Peter links the resurrection to what this today is talking about, which I think is key. Jesus has always been the son. Jesus has always been the king of the Jews. But in a very special way, the, the resurrection of Jesus enters him into the formal, inaugurated rule as Messiah King. Which then brings us to the, the third, the fourth word we're going to look at, the inheritance or his heritage. By virtue of being Messiah King, what does he have a claim to? The whole earth. The whole earth. Again, this is just an absolutely sweeping and audacious promise here. Ask of me and I will make the nations, the very ones we were just talking about, the very enemies of God who are plotting, ask of me and I will make them your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. Which is a big way of saying everything. By virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection, his public inauguration as Messiah King, Jesus has the title deed to everything. Everything. There is not a maverick molecule in the universe which the resurrected Lord does not say, mine. He's jealous for his inheritance. It's his. Which brings us to attention then because in this psalm, what does Messiah King do with the nations upon receiving them? He smashes them. Precisely because of the rebellion. He doesn't smash them because he doesn't care for them. But upon receiving the nations, we've learned the nations are raging against him. And so the just, righteous, and good thing to do against a rebellious insurrection is to smash it, to break it. And so we're left with a tension. Well, what do we do? We live in a world, we just came out of a century where I sure wish Messiah King would have smashed the rebellion in World War II or in other places and times. What, what do we make of this? If this is Jesus, and it is, and if the whole earth is his, and he has a claim to all nations, and he does, then what do we make of this delay? And there's a tension. There's a, there's a now and there's a later in scripture we're to look at. And, and, and I want you just to try to wrap your heads around this. There's a fulfillment now, and there's a fulfillment later. Later is Revelation 19. Later is white horse. And we're going to see the nations very literally get smashed. But Jesus' reign is currently inaugurated. There's been a coronation. But it's not consummated. It's very similar, actually, to the situation with David. I mean, imagine that. David's greater son having similarities in his life with David. In, in 1 Samuel 15... Saul loses the kingdom, loses the Holy Spirit. David's anointed, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. So let me ask you this. Starting in 1 Samuel 15, who's the king of Israel? David. 
Who rules for another 40 years? Saul. And David, time after time, refuses to act presumptuously and step in and claim his rights. Rather, he waits on God's timetable. He refuses to raise his hand against Saul, who was the Lord's anointed. And so there's this period where you've got the real king in title, the anointed king, the king with a real claim to the throne, is not exercising the rule that he could. And a usurper, the tyrant Saul, is running around acting like king, even though he has no legitimate claim to that throne. And that's the world we live in now. Because even though the ruler of this world is cast down, and even though Jesus has received the title deed to the universe, according to Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Satan's functional rule is ongoing, even if he's lost any claim to this world. It's the way Psalm 110 speaks. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So Jesus has been crowned publicly. Jesus has the right, he has the claim, and yet he defers, he delays. And according to 2 Peter, he says, don't count the Lord's patience as slowness to his promises. In case you're crying out, oh Lord, why do you tarry? Why does your judgment hesitate? Why won't you come and stop evil now? Second Peter tells us is to give all a chance to repent. The Lord is not slow or slack in his promises concerning you, but desires all to come to repentance. See, the wonderful truth is that now in the inaugurated kingdom, there's an opportunity for people to change their mind. There's an opportunity for people to change sides. There's an opportunity for rebels to lay down their arms and be embraced. Because when Jesus comes back, that's going to be it. The offer of salvation is taken off the table and pure, total judgment with unquenchable force and authority is going to drop on planet Earth. Now think about this. This this gave me chills when I made this connection this week. Jesus has the title deed to the, to the universe. And when he commissions his apostles to go and gospelize the nations, how does it begin? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, making disciples of the nations. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Or we could translate it, I ask for the nations and they're mine. By virtue of his resurrection, by virtue of Jesus' enthronement. Even now as he tarries, even now as he allows the usurper to run ravage at times in this world, Jesus' authority and title claim becomes the basis to boldly do missions. Why is it that we cannot fear as we go into a dark and evil world proclaiming the gospel? Because Jesus has all authority. Jesus has the title deed. Those who who pretend to be an authority, they're just doing that, pretending. They have no real power. They have no real right. And so Jesus can say, I have the title deed. All authority is mine. Go boldly. Psalm 2 connects to worldwide missions because we see here how it is that Messiah King Jesus has all authority. 
Because he is the Davidic king. Because he has been croned. Because he has been given a name that is above every name. And all authority. And then he takes that authority. And before he shows up and smashes the nations, he gives a time of reprieve. For a message of peace to go out. And that also then becomes another urge for us in missions and in gospelizing. Because at any moment, that offer could be taken off the table. At any moment, Revelation 19 could happen. In fact, let's turn there to Revelation 19 to see the awesome, terrible, earth-shaking fulfillment of Psalm 2. Make no mistake, Messiah King will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Make no mistake, this Psalm will be literally fulfilled. And we get the picture of it clearly in Revelation chapter 19 in a very familiar passage pick it up in verse 11 then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war his eyes are like a flame of fire And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen with white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you keep reading, you see the awful carnage that follows as the birds are invited to the feast of God where they'll feast upon the flesh of kings and rulers. Yes, Psalm 2 is going to be literally fulfilled. And it will be a terrible, awesome, wonderful day of judgment and deliverance. And, and the world mistakes the Lord's patience as weakness. And Peter predicts that there will be those who say, where is the promise of his coming? Not knowing, according to Romans 2, that the patience and kindness of God is meant to bring us to repentance. Jesus will show up and vindicate the glory of of his father and his own name. He will show up and smash the rebellious nations. He will show up and save his people. But in the meantime, we live in the day where Jesus takes his title deed and rather than smashing the nations, he authorizes his people to go and gospelize the nations because of that very authority. Finally, then, our fourth point. In light of the absolute, total victory of Messiah King, and the hopelessness of resisting against him. He just opens his mouth and speaks and they are undone. What are we to do? And we see finally the caution advised to the nations. Caution advised to the nations. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
So first, the rebellious nations are encouraged to rethink their plan. They're told, hey, are you fighting with God? You might want to rethink that. You're not going to win. Are you warring with God? You're going to lose. Rethink your plan. Rethink the consequences. How's that been working out for you so far? Has it been bearing good fruit? Your warfare with the living God? Have you been reaping blessings in your life? Of course not. Rethink your plan. Second, repent and worship. Change your your position of God from one of hostility and warfare where God is your enemy and you're trying to hurt him to one of worship. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, which is a sign of fealty, homage to the king. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Turn from your rebellion. Lay down your arms. The message goes out to the nations. And finally, rest in him. Rest in him. Isn't it wonderful that despite the the announcement of the wickedness of the nations and, and, and just the comical, pathetic nature of their rebellion and God has installed his king who's going to take care of it and the king claims the Davidic promises and says, you've given me the whole earth and so I will judge it and rule it in righteousness and I will smash them. In spite of all of that, the psalm closes with this blessing to those who would take refuge in Jesus. See, the great irony is that Jesus is the coming storm, but he's the only shelter from the storm. There are those who will either try to fight him or run from him, but the only place of safety is resting in Christ. The only way to avoid God's terrible wrath and judgment is resting in him. That's the place of blessing, and it's being announced to his enemies just as it was announced to us, his enemies. And that's the amazing truth. This psalm lifts up the glory of God. It lifts up the wrath of God. It lifts up the authority of God. And then against those enemies whom he's going to smash, he says, but take refuge in my son. And and that's the message to us. That's the message to us. Because I want you to notice something. This isn't just a message for those people who are out there. The nations. The goyim. You may not have noticed it, but in Acts 4, when the early church applies the first two verses of this psalm to the nations, it says, For surely in this town did not Pontius Pilate and the Romans and the people of Israel put to death your son. The early church lumps Israel into the nations, the Goim. You see, the Pharisees would never have thought of themselves as the nations. I mean, they would have read this psalm. This is about them out there. Those bad people. And the terrible tragedy was, in the final analysis, it was about them in here. The nation of Israel largely is grouped with the nations. And so I just want to close realizing it's terribly possible that even though this is the message for them out there, this is the impetus for missions, maybe it's also the message for us in here. That all of us in our hearts have the hearts of these nations. That we rebel against God and his rule. We want to do things our way. We don't like the restrictions of God's law. We don't like being told what to do. We don't want a master or ruler. We want to be king.
So we fight and we push and we do it our way like Frank Sinatra. Have you ever considered that's probably the most satanic song, lyric? That could be the theme song for Satan, but that, that's a message for another time. Um, and I like Frank Sinatra. Um, I did it my way. And we all incur judgment and wrath as a result. And we await a judgment similar to this. When God will judge sin. And there will be no escape. And, and if you think you're going to raise your fist at God, uh, you hear people say this, when I die, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind. No, you're not. Every mouth is going to be closed, according to Romans 3. Every mouth is going to be closed. And every tongue, every tongue is going to confess with bended knee. And some of those knees will be bending because they're broken. That Jesus Christ is Lord. And so what's on the table for us today, and, and realize it's for those out there and it's for us in here, is are we resting in the sun? Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Where are you looking to? For your, are you looking to your righteous deeds? I'm going to find refuge from God's wrath in my righteous deeds. And I'm going to say, Lord, look at all the good things I did when I die. According to Isaiah, they're like medical waste. You might as well be handing God a big bag of used bandages. And I got a lot more of those came from. You know, it's not impressing the Almighty. There's only one place to hide from the coming storm of God's judgment, and that is in the sun. This is the word announced to the rebellious nations. It's the word announced to us. And I just would fear lest any of us would think this is a word for those out there and would be surprised to find in the day of judgment that we got lumped in with the nations, just like Israel did. I want to make one other observation. I think it's wonderful. This is a box at the bottom of your notes that Psalm 2 ends as Psalm 1 began by announcing blessedness. In the former, blessedness is found in delighting in God's word. In the latter, blessedness is found in refuge in the sun. Isn't that wonderful? You take Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together and you say, what is the path of blessedness? The path of blessedness is resting, finding security in God's son and delighting in his word. Isn't that wonderful? These two psalms introduce the Psalter. So here's, here's the path to blessing. It's not doing it your way. It's not slavery to sin that you think is freedom. The path to blessedness is all about finding refuge in the sun and delighting in God's word. You put those two things together, you've got the path of blessedness. I just think this is truly wonderful. God's offer of salvation is on the table as long as Christ tarries and as long as you are living. But please do not presume upon the kindness and patience of the Lord. Let's close in a word of prayer. I just would ask us that our response can be one of twofold. It can be rejoicing. This is our king. This is our great God and savior. This is how the story ends and we win because he wins. Or maybe this is frightening. Maybe you're God's enemy. Maybe your heart is in throes of rebellion against him and, and you've tried to avoid that. I'm telling you, this is, this is what's awaiting you. This is what's coming. You won't stand in the day of judgment. Psalm 1 says sinners will not stand in the day of judgment. You need refuge. You need safety. You need salvation. Don't look for it at any place other than God's Son. Lord God, we rejoice. We rejoice in, in the picture that we have seen of your Son, David's greater Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who images you perfectly 
very God of very God, who born king is yet crowned king by the resurrection. And my virtue of that owns everything. And we rejoice that he is merciful and patient. That he has tarried his judgment and withheld his wrath so that the message of peace could go out. Lord, it's my prayer that message of peace would reach everyone here today, Lord. That there's anyone who is not looking for refuge in your son, placing their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. They're trusting in something else to save them. Or worse yet, they're consciously your enemies, Lord, that you would break them with your kindness. That you would give them a holy fear so that they, along with us, would rejoice with trembling. Lord, we we all want that blessed path of life that is found only in your Son. So we pray with the Apostle Paul, come swiftly, Lord Jesus, come. And while you tarry, give us grace to live day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.